Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and um, if this is new to you, you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. Um, this program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. And so if you support, appreciate it and feel like supporting it, um, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. And there's a donation page that explains all their alternatives for people who don't like PayPal. And thanks again to those who have been supporting it. My guest today is Kavita Chanayan, MD. She's a cardiologist, an integrative cardiologist, because she is also a meditation teacher, um, an expert in Ayurveda, uh, tantrika. She became drawn to the direct path through the teachings of Greg Good, who has been on Batgap, and Sri Atmananda Krishnamenon, and has studied yoga, Sri Vidya Sadhana, Vedanta, and Tantra through the teachings of the Chinmaya mission, Sri Premananda, Sally Kempton, who has been on Batgap, Paul Mueller Ortega, who has been on Batgap, and Sri Chaitanyananda Nata Saraswati, who hasn't been on Batgap. Uh, <laughs> she blends her expertise in cardiology with her knowledge of Ayurveda, Yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and the direct path in her approach to healing, enabling patients to discover bliss amid chronic illness. She's an associate professor of medicine at Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine in Rochester, Michigan. And she's the author of Shakti Rising, published last year, Non-Duality Press, and The Heart of Wellness, which I don't have a copy of, so I can't hold up, which is coming out. Just came out. Just came out, which is more of a health-oriented book. Shakti Rising is uh, subtitled Embracing Shadow and Light on the Goddess Path to Wholeness. And, um, well, first of all, welcome, Kavita. Glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me here, Rick. This is an interesting book. Um, when you first glance at it, you see all these photos of Indian goddesses, and, you know, with skulls around their necks and drinking blood and c cutting off heads and all that stuff. <laughs> and you might think, Eh, you know, I'm, firstly, I'm not a Hindu, and secondly, you know, that's all mythology and, and ooga booga, and, and it doesn't interest me that much. But if you actually read the book, uh, as I have almost in, in its entirety, um, you discover that, you know, these archetypes are um, symbolic or representative of a very sophisticated and subtle understanding of the mechanics of creation. And in fact, I bet you if a, you know, qualified quantum physicist were to read this book, he could, or he or she could draw correlations between a lot of the things that Kavita explains in it and his or her understanding of physics at, at the cutting edge of that discipline. So it's a credit to Kavita, I think, for ferreting out the implications of these archetypes and also from uh, credit to the tradition from which they come for understanding so deeply the mechanics of creation and portraying them in, in a sort of artistic or archetypical form, which, you know, probably most scholars have dismissed as, as quaint mythology, but which is really profound and significant. Anyway, that's a bit of a mouthful, but um, what do you think? Is that a fair assessment of what I what you intended to convey in the book? Absolutely, that's that's absolutely right on target. 
Another thing that, well, we'll, I have four pages of notes here, so we're going to spend a couple hours getting into all kinds of interesting stuff. But one thing that struck me fairly soon in reading the book and was actually mentioned in the bio that I just read is Direct Path. And uh, I actually moderated a panel discussion on the direct versus progressive paths at the Science and Non-Duality Conference last October. And I felt like, in reading your book and hearing your explanation of direct path, that I, I gained a much better understanding of what that term actually means, even though I prepared for and moderated that panel. Maybe, just for starters, we could start in many places, but why don't you define what is meant by direct path as contrasted with progressive path? Sure. The progressive paths, you know, are um, the paths that most of us are familiar with, yoga and tantra and even Vedanta to a large extent, because they start with the assumption um, that who we are is this limited body-mind and that we are going towards a goal of remembering or discovering the self. Whereas the direct path actually starts with the premise that we are already that. So what happens if you stand in your direct experience, you know, devoid of conditioning or devoid of stories? And if you were just to look at your direct experience alone, what would that look like? For instance, if you were to look at an object without any of the labeling that occurs regarding the object, what would happen to th that object if we took a stand as the self or awareness? So the stand from which we approach a path is what determines whether it's progressive or the direct path. Because ultimately, even in the progressive paths, at no point are we ever separate from awareness. We are always that, but it's just we begin with the, uh, you know, with the goal seemingly in the future, that we are going to discover that. Whereas here, we start with that premise already. Is there an overlap? Is the direct path progressive, and is the progressive path, or can it be, in some respects, direct? Yeah, so, you know, the direct path, it's, it's very interesting, um, because Greg, you know, who is really my teacher in the direct path, will say uh, that Greg Good, uh, will say that even to have arrived at the direct path, most people have done years of practice in the progressive paths. It, because it's such a subtle thing to, to tell somebody who is, is not familiar at all with this and say, now take a stand as awareness. That's a very, <laughs> that's, it's a very subtle thing. So it makes sense only after years of having studied in the progressive paths, suddenly it makes sense, right? So that was actually going to be my question, you know, because people think they hear about this and they think, hey, why not the direct path? Why, why goof around for a decade? I, I just as soon, you know, get right onto it. And then you have all these people that have read some Vedanta books and, and so on, uh, proclaiming themselves already enlightened and everybody's already enlightened and you don't have to do anything and going on and on and, and internet chat groups. And so I, I, I must admit that I developed a bit of a resentment or bias against, <laughs> against that sort of um, angle. But anyway, go ahead. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important to clarify that the direct path isn't Neo-Vedanta, right. Neo, Neo you know, which is what you, right. you were just, 
Uh, yeah, the, the new Advaita, which is there's nobody to do anything. It it never says that. You know, the direct path in the tradition of Sri Atmananda Krishna Menon never talks about any of that. It's just saying, you know, well, what is really happening in your direct experience right now? And so it, it goes through a very uh, systematic process of looking at the world, looking at our bodies, looking at you know objects of um, the, the sense objects and so on in in purely the direct experience. So it's tempting to think that the direct path is somehow going to be shorter. It isn't. You know, just because it's direct doesn't mean that somehow you're going to be enlightened in this moment. There is still a lot of work to do because taking a stand as awareness isn't something that comes naturally to most of us. And so taking a stand there and doing the inquiry is a process. It is progressive. Yeah, when you say taking a stand as awareness, what comes to my mind is that many people might try to do that and end up being manipulative of their experience, you know, like they're they're driving the car or they're shopping or they're having a dinner conversation and part of their mind is trying to kind of take a stand as awareness as, as they're doing that, which in my understanding would divide the mind and divide the attention and not be helpful. Absolutely. So, you know, this is not something that Greg says, um, you know, in his teachings of the direct path, but something that I feel as a long-term meditator and a proponent of meditation for various reasons, that taking a stand as of awareness actually becomes more natural when we have cultivated the witnessing ability, which is something that happens with a long-term deep meditation practice. And that, you know, in the context of inner silence, that makes more sense. Otherwise, exactly as you said, you know, we're manipulating experience to think that we are standing as awareness, whereas actually it's all mental noise. And when you say witnessing ability... I think of witnessing more as a natural condition that develops eventually rather than a skill that one acquires. And so, you know, if if witnessing is genuine, it's not some attitude that one adopts or some manipulation that one tries to continue throughout the day or anything, but it's a just a way of being where you could be involved in dynamic activity and yet there's this pure silence and this a sense of a very distinct sense of uninvolvement because pure silence is uninvolved in activity. And it could, pers- and it should ultimately, ideally, eventually persist throughout sleep. Um, so you, you couldn't manipulate that. Yes, absolutely. And that can't be faked. It can't be adopted, as you said. But it's something that kind of naturally unfolds over a long-term meditation practice. Wouldn't you agree? As a long-term yeah, meditator. it does. And I, was, in, I yeah. was interviewing a guy one time. We got onto this topic, and he said, oh, I can witness any time. And then he said, here, watch, I'll show you. And he kind of went into this spacey, detached sort of thing like he wasn't all there. And I thought, that, you know, that's not witnessing as I understand it. <laughs> No, that's not how I understand it either. And this is the thing, you know, it's, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, but, you know, Tantra is is this uh, science of absolute intimacy with experience. However, to get there, we first need to create that space between the subject and the object, you know, which is what witnessing does. And we, we need that space in order to be able to look at our own processes. Uh, we need that space to stand back. And that's really what witnessing uh, cultivates. I mean, it provides, you know, over So time. would you say that you or, or one would 
do something to cultivate that space between subject and object? Or would you say that that's something that one eventually notices after sufficient practice? I think it, it just happens. happens over over time. Over time with a cult you know, with a dedicated meditation practice. And I say meditation practice because that's what worked for me and works for people I know, um, for the people I teach meditation to. And there may be other things that work for other people, but this is something that that I know works very effectively. effectively. Yeah. And just to kind of well clarify it more maybe. You know, when we say subject and object, well, what do you mean by subject when you say subject? We know what we, what we mean by objects, trees and dogs and everything, but what is what do you mean by subject between which there's going to be a space, that and, and objects? Yeah, so, um, you know, when we think about objects, you know, traditionally, we think of physical objects like, you know, the table and the chair and the tree and so on. But actually... Everything that is experienced sure, is a an thought object. or anything. Thought and emotion, any any perception, any sensation, all of those things are really objects. But who are all these things occurring to? What is that? And that is the subject. So th- there is the soul subject, and everything appears to that subject, and they're all objects. Yes. Okay, so we could say that the mechanics of perception are such that there's an observer. There's the, there's the observed, and then there's the process of observation, right? Yes, absolutely. The, tri- uh, you know, the classic right. triad. And process would involve the mind, the nervous system, the senses, and all that. Um, so what is that observer? We, it's pretty easy to put your finger on the, the object or even the, you know, the, the, the mechanics of perception, but how about the perceiver or the observer? Um, what is that? Yeah, so... That basically sums up the spiritual path for me, which is, what is that observer? Because ordinarily, we think the observer is this person that resides in this body. You know, we, most of us don't think the body as ourselves. You know, we think that whatever is inside the body that is, you know, being the puppeteer of the body is who we are, right? This, the subtle body. So we take that to be the the subject. But then what the spiritual path shows us is that that too is an object. And so the subject then is, is aware, pure awareness, which is, which is not localized to the body and the mind. It is more global, where even this person occurs in that awareness, in that global awareness. So that process from the subject, you know, with the small s, Moving on to the the subject with the with the capital S would be the journey, basically. Okay, good. I think most people listening to this will be familiar with that kind of notion. And so, just to put a lid on it, the the subject which we hope to discover through spiritual path is not going to be discovered in the way that we discover Antarctica or, <laughs> or you know, something under a microscope or, or it's, it's not something that can be observed through the senses any more than uh, the classic example, any more than the eyeball can sort of perceive itself. It's that which perceives. Yes, exactly. Yes. And I, I, I think we'll get in more into that as we go into the, the path of the goddess. But that kind of knowledge is is actually one of the subtle veils that are very, very difficult to pierce mm-hmm. through. 
Well, let's get into the path of the goddess. You talk about how the feminine power became sidelined. I think that would be interesting to start with historically what what happened. Well, you know, a lot of the reports, for instance, of yoga, if you look at, you know, the origin of yoga, there are many different theories and many different uh, historical perspectives on, on how yoga began. But one perspective is that because women have the cyclical nature, you know, they have these cycles of menstruation and birth and menopause and so on, it is much more easy for women to actually observe their own physiological processes, which is what happens to the, not just the, you know, the reproductive system, but how it affects everything else because of these cyclical natures and um, the nature of the woman. So one theory in terms of the origin of yoga states that actually it was something that was discovered by women in the, the pre-Vedic times. And so they began to actually observe their physiology and to see, could, could we control this? You know, could we influence this by breath practices or through certain postures or by changing the way that we think or feel? And began to actually experience changes in their cycles as a result of changing these kind of, you know, the prana in the body and so on. And then they taught it to the men because it's like, um, you know, ultimately it's about progeny and the quality of the progeny. So if we can teach it to the men and have them also purify this prana and and have the highest quality uh, progeny as a result of that. So they taught it to the men, and eventually in in the Vedic times uh, and and moving forward after that, somehow women were just excluded from from all of that. So the very processes that actually helped create that, you know, menstruation and and so on, especially in the Hindu tradition, became a taboo. Because women are, are going through these cyclical processes, they are impure or they should not be taught this. And while there is some wisdom in women not doing certain practices because it affects their physiology, it was just taken as, you know, being impure or inferior and passed on through centuries of that kind of wrong kind of thinking, which is still widely prevalent right yeah. now. If you give credence to the notion of the yugas or any other model of ages and cycles with throughout history um do you kind of see that the patriarchal dominance as being characteristic or symptomatic of the 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 so-called kali yuga or the dark age in which we seem to have found ourselves and do you see this um me too movement and the whole awakening of of the feminine and um you know divine feminine and emphasis in in women's role in spirituality and so on to be a, a kind of a harbinger of, of better times? I certainly hope yeah. so. Um, yeah, I think it's very interesting, you know, this whole issue of the Kali Yuga. It seems like that that seems to be true, not just in our political and cultural and social kinds of upheaval that the whole world seems to be going uh, through right now, but also natural disasters and everything, for instance, that California is going through or other places are going through. It's like an absolute upheaval that change is the only way. That whatever is the dominant structure, whatever is crystallized into being the norm is not going to work anymore. 
and so too with the you know the me too movement and the redefining of those roles you know the gender roles and saying well it's time to question those crystallized ways of thinking and conditioning that somehow we as the world have you know we have just kind of accepted to be yeah one. you and I were talking about Ama before we started here and um, you know she's doing things she's been doing things all along in India I mean the very fact of what she does was totally shocking to a lot of male dominated thinkers in India touching people and hugging people and so on but then she's also tried to um, put women in roles that ordinarily reserved for men you know in, in India the various temple functions and, and yagyas and things like that which women weren't supposed to be able to do yeah absolutely and so she is an absolute you know she's a trailblazer in this whole spiritual movement and so what really attracts me to this this path of the divine feminine is that even though the traditional spiritual paths have been patriarchal there have been some traditions where it has um not been the case where the women are still given their equal uh place in in the in the path on the path and are um are the actual keepers of that tradition. So you won't even find these teachers. You won't even find these women. They are not, you know, they are not going to be announcing themselves to be teachers. So it, it's really a stroke of luck if you can find someone like that <laughs> to work with. Yeah. And but but there is that unbroken tradition still. Yeah. Well, here at Batgap we have a policy these days, at least last year or two of interviewing an equal number of men and women. Irene says, okay, we're looking at March. So here's two men. Now we need two women. And so we, we really we really try to stick to that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> okay, so Shakti and the Mahavidyas. So the Mahavidyas, as I understand it, well, you go ahead and define them. Sure. So um, Maha means great and Vidya means knowledge or wisdom. So these are the goddesses of great wisdom great goddesses of cosmic wisdom um many different ways of defining them but that's really the essence of the uh, the definition of the word mahavidya and there are traditionally 10 mahavidyas or 10 goddesses of great wisdom the most famous of them is kali and what makes them great what is it that makes the sequence of this group of goddesses so unique is the first aspect is that they each of these goddesses represents a force of creation like kali represents time bhuvaneshwari represents space and so on so there is one thing that is one thing they all have in common the other thing they all have in common is that they are all fears so you don't see any of the you know uh, the demureness in them and you don't see the uh, patriarchal definition of femininity in them because um they defy all such norms of what the feminine is supposed to be and they defy those norms because shakti is everything you know she is all of creation in fact the, uh, many of the images of their fierceness 
depict them taking it out on men, you know, standing on them, lopping their heads off, smashing their, pulling their tongues out, stuff like that. Well, they typically representing the poor man in all of these in all of these um, imageries is, is Shiva. But there is, of course, as you know, there is a very deep symbolism behind that. But you know, it's not like a, it's it's not like these goddesses are, you know, they are not propagating this kind of you know what I call the misinformed feminism. That's not what these goddesses are about. But they, whether we are, whether I'm a man or a woman, the Mahavidyas are, are going to be extremely important because the third thing they all have in common is they all represent aspects of our own psyche. The kinds of things that keep us bound to this, to thinking that the self is this body-mind, which is what I call the shadow aspect, and then they also have the opposing quality of the light, which leads us to liberation from that. And so they are not, you know how um, deities always represent the highest in any particular tradition. And they are pure goodness or pure light. So the Mahavidyas are not like that because they represent, they, they don't exclude the darkness, they include all of the uh, darkness and all of the, uh, you know, the so-called negative aspects to show that Shakti does not prefer one thing over the other. She is everything. Well, if we look at the actual universe, it's a pretty wild place. There are planets getting smashed by asteroids and getting melted by, you know, expanding suns and all kinds of... It's a, you know, violent place and full of beauty, full of violence and death and life. And, I mean, the whole spectrum of of possibilities is on full display. If these goddesses represent the impulses of intelligence governing the universe, then it's completely in keeping with the iconography that they, you know, have these fierce aspects, I would say, as well as compassionate aspects. I mean, their whole point is not to just wreak havoc, but to destroy ignorance and to liberate people and so on. Yes, absolutely. And and so, you know, this is this is why it, they really force us to kind of smash our own stereotypes of what we think we are. Because, you know, for instance, we talk about ahimsa, you know, nonviolence as the fundamental ethic of yoga, for instance, or of any spiritual path. But then, you know, you look at Kali or any of these goddesses, you know, their imagery is one is is very violent, right? And so, especially Kali, for instance. And if you look at Kali, you wouldn't be thinking, "Well, she's representing nonviolence." You know, that's not what comes to mind. It's extremely gory and violent. But, but as time, you know, as the force of time, it's the perfect you know representation, if you ask me, because time is violent. It's ruthless. It doesn't wait for anybody. It doesn't care about our precious memories and so on. It's it's just it doesn't wait for anybody. It doesn't care about anybody. It's always going right. And so she is showing that. And and you know when we think about life itself, ask a woman who's given birth if that was a nonviolent process. You know, (laughs) Uh, so everything, you know, by taking birth, 
you know, just taking birth itself is a violent process. So, you know, if we don't accept that, then we are living in delusion that there is going to be a place of absolute nonviolence all the time. There is never going to be such a thing. So how do you reconcile the prescription of ahimsa in, in Patanjali's yoga with the reality of the universe and with the depiction of these Mahavijas? So I think that's that can be a path in itself over a lifetime. You know, this this real discovery of ahimsa within ourselves and the actual practice of it. Because we we think that you know nonviolence is about not killing and not you know doing these kinds of bad things to other people, which is of course part of that. But it's much more subtle than that, you know. Especially as uh, spiritual practitioners and and spiritual seekers. We can be extremely violent in the way we judge other people who are perhaps not on the path and uh, how we judge ourselves and how we judge everything and think that this is not how it should be. So any resistance to what is, is violence. And just to come to that acceptance, I think, is, is the path of Kali. It's true. I mean, Kali herself is not resisting what is. One thing that comes to my mind is James Bond. He had a license to kill, right? But ordinarily people don't have that license. And so perhaps we could say that a spiritual seeker, it behooves or is incumbent upon a spiritual seeker to practice ahimsa, to be nonviolent. But if you happen to have risen to the, the level of one of the fundamental impulses of intelligence governing the universe, then, then some sort of violence is within your job description. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have to be violent sometimes in in very subtle ways within ourselves, right? If you have these recurring, you know, self-defeating thoughts, for instance, then we can invoke Kali to behead all of them. You know? Cut them off, yeah. Yeah, so cut them off right at the source. But but see how violence is required sometimes. And, you know, if you're a parent, you'll, you'll understand that sometimes... You need to be able to communicate with your children in a way that seems violent, but actually it isn't, right, in, right. The, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, seems violent to the child, like, stop scrubbing behind my ear, you know, or, <laughs> <laughs> or you're depriving me of this candy. Yes, you know? yeah, yeah, I, uh, let me be on my phone know. 24 hours a day. Can't I'm you? sure you're not advocating any kind of actual violence against children, but, you know, things <laughs> no. from the child's perspective that seem so mean and unfair. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I say that, you know, as a mother of two teenagers and trying to direct them always into things that are more wholesome is as in don't be on your phone 12 hours a day because that's that's really not it rots your brain. It rots your brain. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting, actually, because this points to a, a deeper point. Maybe you've already kind of said it. But uh, if we regard the universe as being a, one giant evolution machine, as having an ev evolutionary agenda or trajectory, then, you know, all the stuff that happens, however violent it may seem, is ultimately in our best interest. Uh, if it's if it's true that the universe has this evolutionary tendency or, or direction, which it seems to have, if you look at its violent birth as the Big Bang and then its evolution over 13.7 billion years to where we've gotten it, it all involves, you know, exploding stars and, you know, all kinds of wild things happening in order to make life possible. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, even, you know, we were talking about the yugas earlier. And, and if you look at, you know, every yuga has had 
you know, its share of violence and its share of, um, you know, the bad guys, so to speak. So it, it seems like somehow, well, we are in this current era of um, really bad things happening. But but at no point in creation has there been a time when that has not been the case, you know, because that is really part of the whole. And um, Kali Sadhana, or the Sadhana of this particular Mahavidya, actually shows us that we need to get beyond ourselves in the way we think, because creation itself moves as a whole. It isn't, Kali doesn't prefer one thing over another. Everything is part of it. Mm. Yeah. And the balance keeps shifting between Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas, and whatever other triads you want to define. That, you know, there's a, there's a cyclical nature to everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Turn, turn, turn. Now, here's a question. We talk, we've alluded to the, the notion of the, the universe being intelligent and everything, nothing being arbitrary or, or accidental or capricious. There's this sort of infinite intelligence in every iota of creation and every vast phenomenon as well, galaxies and their interactions and so on. So when I think of these goddesses, I, I, I wonder whether it would be actually possible to get down to some level where you would actually see one of them as depicted in these in these sorts of photos um you know this kind of thing oops there it is or whether those are just sort of artistic representations of streams of intelligence or impulses of intelligence which perform various functions but when i say that i don't mean to depersonalize them because i think that any by definition an impulse of intelligence gross or subtle is a conscious being we are an impulse of intelligence there are angels and celestial beings who are impulses of intelligence and who are conscious beings in their own right i suspect that these mahavidyas if they really exist are conscious beings who have a universal frame of reference or universal territory of influence you know that they, they are you know, kind of on the upper echelons of the hierarchy of creation and and have a, uh, a function that, that encompasses the entire universe or universes, as the case may be. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. So, you know, to back up a little bit, to say that, for instance, to really define, you know, these Mahavidyas, you know, what are they? And so we we have to just talk a little bit about this dichotomy between Shiva and Shakti. And then we can understand that, which is, you know, in the tantric tradition, there is this potential before anything. So all of creation rests as a potential. Latent potential. Latent potential, undifferentiated. And the first movement within that potential is self-recognition or this self-awareness. And so it is said that Shakti is, uh, and Shiva separate in that self-recognition. So she is his self-recognition. So it's like that undifferentiated potential looking in the mirror and finding that the one here is Shiva and there is Shakti. But they are actually one and the same. So with that differentiation, 
you know, there is the the whole creation process begins after that. And, you know, that that is the moment of the Big Bang, so to speak, that uh, self-awareness. But in order to understand that beyond that, then, you know, what creates space and time and this expansion of the universe and, you know, this, this creation of separate beings and so on. So Shakti is Shiva's creative power. So it is said that, you know, Shiva is pure awareness and pure awareness is attributelessness. And so there are no attributes. Shiva cannot create because his creative power is Shakti. And so um, that create, creative power, so if we have to create something, we need several different skills, right? And so those skills of creation are these Mahavidyas. So as time and as space and as the intention or will and knowledge and action and so on. So Shakti taking different forms are these Mahavidyas. So she is... Actually, there's only one, but she takes all these different forms to go ahead with the process of creation. But they're all powers of Shiva. So, you know, they're always one and the same. So, you know, so they are universal in that, but also they form, each of these Mahavidyas forms a focal point of our sadhana and our devotion and our practice. And so anytime a deity becomes the focal point of a practice, we see them as such, you know, in our mind's eye. So somebody who is not very familiar with this and is familiar with some other kind of a focal point or an ideal will see that in their sadhana and not necessarily this. But these Mahavidyas, the descriptions have been put together very beautifully, I think, by these ancient sages to really depict the subtleties of those creative powers of Shakti. I mentioned earlier that I thought that if a, if a qualified quantum physicist were to read this book, he would be able to correlate a lot of the things in it with the understanding that physics has come up with, because physics, by definition, is trying to... Um, understand the subtlest mechanics of creation from whence the whole creation arises and how it how it diversifies and differentiates and manifests and so on there is one guy uh, there are a number of the menes kafatos and um and others who who speak at the science and non-duality conference um i've interviewed menos another is john Hagelin, whom i've interviewed who wrote a paper called is consciousness the unified field and and goes into a real interesting explanation of uh, the sort of, has, I think he calls it sequential spontaneous symmetry breaking that happens as oneness diversifies into multiplicity. So anyway, that's just a reference for people who want to look into that side of it more. Before we proceed, is there anything that you that has kind of come to your mind that you'd like to say? Okay, okay good. So let's let's start going through some of these Mahavidyas and explaining the role and significance of each one. And um, the first in your book, and the first the one you've primarily mentioned so far, is Kali, who represents time, which is also related to death, where letting go and moving on brings new life. What shall we say about her? <laughs> Be careful what you say, because she'll get you. <laughs> um. We could talk about Kali for hours because, um, you know, there's so much to say about her. Because 
she is, you know, in this, uh, in, in the, among the Mahavidyas, she represents time. And so she is the primordial force. And that's why she's also called Adi Shakti, the primordial, the first Shakti. And so in regards to Kali, I think, I think there are so many different aspects of Kali. You know, she is the also the goddess of transformation because time is transformation. So one thing that I think it's really important for me to say and to and to just put it out there is that there is a lot of kind of correlation of Kali these days with what I what I was saying earlier about misinformed feminism as if uh, like she is the goddess of vengeance or that, you know, somehow uh, we tend to justify our rage by portraying Kali or Durga or any of these goddesses as if saying that, look, I can embody that. But I, what I want to say is, no, we can't embody that because she is Adi Shakti. And um, it's going to take a lot more than rage to to embody her. And that requires transcendence of time and the limitations of linear time, which is really her biggest trap or in the way she entraps us in this illusion of being this limited time, uh, you know, time bound kind of person uh, with our stories and so on. So, you know, I think there is there is a lot of misunderstanding around Kali. Yeah. As the story goes, her rage was um, a benign thing that uh, she came into being to get rid of some real bad guys who were, who were making a lot of trouble in the universe. And, um, and ordinary human rage isn't necessarily so benign and constructive. Um, it's, it can be damaging and violent and, and harmful. Um, so... Uh, like, as you say, we, sh- we shouldn't necessarily use Kali as an alibi for venting our anger. Yeah, and so, you know, you bring up a really good point. And that story that you were relating from is from the Devi Mahatmyam, you know, where, where Kali actually lead, leaps onto this battlefield, uh, you know, from Durga's face. And um, it is exactly to uh, vanquish these asuras or these, you know, bad forces of the universe. But however, the Devi actually in, in the Devi Mahatmyam says, there is nobody to kill because they're all me. And, and so her rage and her destruction, they're all a show because, the, you know, the good and the bad, there is, she's, she declares that they're also my children. They're also me. And so, you know, that, that non-differentiation between me and other is, is the fundamental principle, right? And, and if we, we can't embody Kali's rage unless you know, that is also our state of being, that non-separation. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, the Gita says stuff like that, too. You know, weapons cannot cleave him, fire cannot burn him, water cannot win him, wind cannot dry him away, and, and so on. That The sort of indestructibility of the, of the self, which is obviously not true of the body. So we have to know ourself as being that which is uncleavable and so on, or else we're just sort of misapplying Yes, levels. exactly. And, you know, in the 11th chapter of the Gita, when, when uh, Lord Krishna shows his universal form, the Vishwarupa to Arjuna, he's, Arjuna is actually shocked to see that, you know, even the Kauravas are part of Krishna. 
you know, uh, there is all the bad forces. Who are yes. the bad guys in yes. that story, Yes, everybody right? is, is swirling around in Krishna's form. Like, you know, he's everywhere. He is encompassing everything. Yeah. Well, if we think of Krishna as God, and if we define God as the sort of universal intelligence, which even scientifically we can see is functional in every single particle of creation, we can't find a place where we don't see all those laws of nature functioning in one way or another, then obviously it has to be a totality which contains all the parts. There, there could be nothing Ex- outside exactly. of it. And so it is also, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, we call it, we call that intelligence Krishna. And in the Devi traditions, we call that intelligence Devi or Shakti. <laughs> I was just commenting with someone the other day about one of the meanings for Krishna is black. And it's interesting that the color black, anything that's black, absorbs all colors of the spectrum. It doesn't reflect any. And that some also reminds me of that saying that Brahman is the eater of everything. So somehow the the totality absorbs or eats or consumes or subsumes. uh, all the And and so it is with Kali, you know, She, she is absolutely black. You know, there is, there is, so that's how you differentiate her from Tara, for instance, who has a little bit of color. But Kali is absolutely black. She is the black goddess for the exact same reason, which is, and, and I, I don't know if you knew this, but Kali is supposed to be Krishna's Shakti. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yes. I did not yeah. Know that. So she yeah. is, um, you know, considered his uh, Shakti. And, um, In- interesting. Huh. Now, um, you know, a lot of these goddesses, Kali included, are always wearing garlands of skulls. And the, that, that's, as I understand, that's supposed to be symbolic of the destruction of egos um, in, a good, in a good sense, um, kind of like um, which it would be destruction of ignorance in, in a person. Um, and so, you know, in, in your book, you refer a lot to the I self. And so I have some questions about the eye self. <laughs> um, does, does everyone have one? Um, can we function without one? Here's a quote from your book. The sense of separation is reinforced through comparison and judgment, and the eye self grows stronger. Can one be utterly without an eye self and still function as a human being, or does there need to be, or, or does the eye self get transformed into something more pure, but there's still some sort of recognition of, of a person here? in order to w- live in yeah, the world. So that, that is a great question. So the first question, does everybody have one? Yes, unless uh, we have, you know, worked through it and, um, and so on. But yes, everybody has one because we are, you know, we are culturally and socially universally um, conditioned to develop one. And that happens at a very early age when, with the, with the uh, formation of with giving a child a name and suddenly there is a separation between uh, me and the mother and me and me and everybody else. And that sense of me is what I'm calling the I-self, which is, you know, uh, the story of the me uh, that, that, you know, revolves around the body and the mind and called the ego in every um, tradition. And the ego, I I specifically didn't want to use the word ego because sometimes it it means uh, an inflated sense of self. But I didn't, I did, I specifically left that out because you may not have an inflated sense of self, but you have a sense of self. Uh, that is limited. And so that's why I use, you know, the I-self as the word. 
So is it possible to live without uh, an eye self? Well, you know, there are accounts of people that live or have lived through the, uh, you know, that whole no self kind of an experience. Who Who is, I, I'm sure you are, the experience of no self. Oh, yes, Bernadette, Bernadette Roberts. Roberts. You know, have you read her book, The Experience of No Self? I've got yeah. it on the shelf here. Yeah. I've got it in it. But. So, you know, she describes this whole process of how she lives through or lived through that phase of the complete falling away of the no-self. Now, did she pass through that phase and eventually discover uh, uh, some kind of I a think self so. Thing? I think, you know, then she, she, dis- she talks about coming back to the marketplace after having been a nun for many, many years. And, um, and, and the, that sense of self coming back in a very different way, where it is, where it is more of a functional thing where it is, it is for living day to day, but there isn't that self-referential thing going on all the time. And, um, uh, you know, Gary Weber and others talk about, um, you know, these, uh, you know, the, the two neural pathways. One is the one that is constantly self-referential, you know, this is the blah, blah network. And then the other is the task positive network, which in which there isn't the self-referential thing going on all the time. And so if we lose that, the task positive network is still there. And, you know, the sages call that the, you know, the state where the mind is your slave rather than you are the slave of the mind, um, where the mind is used for functional, you know, for doing practical things, but then it doesn't exist otherwise. Yeah, so, but there is, still is one. So if you say, hey, Nisargadatta, would you like a cigarette or something? He, he knows yeah. who you're talking to. <laughs> Especially with a <the> cigarette. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then obvious examples would be like somebody has, says they have no eye self, but then you stick a fork in their leg or something. They, they know that that's happening. There's some kind of localized identification with that experience. It's not the same as sticking a fork in, yes. in the table. Or something yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so, you know, I think I think this is where um, there are subtle differences between, uh, you know, the tantric path and the other paths. I think this is it's, it's one of those subtle things where, you know, for instance, in my uh, studies of Advaita Vedanta, the the teaching or the general consensus was you need to lose the ego. And, and so, you know, that losing the ego is, is the beginning of enlightenment or uh, the beginning of awakening. But that isn't really the issue in Tantra. You know, it is actually refinement where you know that you're not that. But what that sense of self is, is continuously refined where the understanding or the self-knowledge actually pours through into the body-mind where our functioning becomes more and more and more refined. So it is actually a two-way journey, you know, where you're going up and losing the sense of self, of course, that self-referential kind of a thing. But then the body-mind obviously doesn't go away. You're still alive and you're still functioning, you're still living. So that light of, you know, the self can be allowed to actually refine those conditioned pathways where what that means is it's very easy to be awake and still be a jerk. Right? Yeah. 
which brings into the question the whole issue of what it really means to be awake or what what an awakening really means. I mean, you know, so many people say I've had an awakening, but I always think, yeah, fine, but there's so many possibilities for levels of awakening, degrees of awakening, and you know, one awakening does not. Yes, a saint exactly, make. and and so you know, tantra is very beautiful in that it's it's not like doesn't limit you to you know just transcendence. It's actually imminence also, which is the refinement of this body-mind to, to optimal levels of functioning, where the, we are actually rewiring our neurohormonal pathways and, you know, rewiring the whole um, physiology, basically, where we can live that light more and more. Yeah, and as a physician, I'm sure you know that the whole physiology doesn't get rewired overnight. It's some, it's neuroplasticity and all that takes, it, it can be yes, a lifelong absolutely. process. Yes, absolutely. And that's what my other book is about, by the way. <laughs> oh, good. I'll have to read that. Um, just one little comment I, I want I, I made up this metaphor the other day. It's a variation on an old metaphor, but I was having a discussion with a friend about this no self thing. And um, it's like, Streams and rivers are completely distinct from one another. You know, this stream says, I am this stream, and I'm totally different than that stream. But once they reach the ocean, then they all kind of merge, and, they, and then they might say, oh, I'm just the ocean. And, and, but let's say, for the sake of the metaphor, that the streams don't completely cease to exist. They become currents within the ocean, um, you know. And so our individuality doesn't completely get obliterated, but it becomes sort of a component within a, a much greater wholeness. Initially, the ocean might say, I'm just the ocean. I don't see any currents. And conversely, the, the current might say, all I see is the ocean. I don't, I, I've lost any sort of sense of individuality. But I think eventually, if you kind of delve into and become sensitive to the fine fabrics of what's going on within consciousness, you discover all these currents and impulses of intelligence and dynamic things taking place within the oneness yeah. within the wholeness. Oh, I love it. Metaphor? I love it. And and uh, that's that's uh, that's absolutely beautiful. And that's uh, really you know the uh, the um, the crux of this path is is that there is the oneness, but there is also the uniqueness in which that oneness expresses itself. Yeah, in which and through which. So, getting back to my notes here, this is still in the Kali chapter of your book. As Kundalini touches each chakra, hidden issues surface so that they can be resolved. Um, I thought that was just interesting, to, you know, worth no, worth discussing a bit. Um, so I could elaborate on the question, but I think you know what I'm talking about. So go yeah, ahead, go for so, it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we think of Kundalini, and I think this is where we really must. Um, define what kundalini is because we somehow think of kundalini as you know this some kind of a huge energetic experience and then you're all blissed out thereafter and so on but that's not really it you know the kundalini is said to be active in the tantric traditions when you develop a you know what in advaita vedanta is known as mumukshutvam you know the burning desire for awakening where it becomes the primordial focus of your life. That's when the Kundalini is said to be active. You may not have all these energetic experiences. You may not like, you know, have all this buzzing and the vibration and stuff. And of course, a lot of people have that, but that isn't really it. 
I think that the roughness and smoothness of it depends to a certain extent upon how impeded yes. it is. You know, if there's a lot of blockages, then there can be a lot of intensity yes. as those blockages are cleared, and other people hardly notice Absolutely. anything. Absolutely, and on so at it all. all has to do with the nadis because yeah. uh, you know where the obstructions may be in the subtle body, and so the chakras are really the con- you know the confluence of these nadis at specific points, and there are hundreds of them throughout the you know throughout the subtle body. But we usually think of the chakras along the spine. And so this, the activated kundalini energy, which directs our desire for awakening, you know, goes up the spine, so to speak. And, and, and so traditionally in the tantric uh, traditions and even the yoga traditions, we talk about these chakras as hosting or um, having certain uh, properties where certain issues are stored, you know, in the psyche. So when, when that energy touches that, then all of those issues come really, you know, surfacing into our awareness. And so, for instance, you know, if you have a long-term meditation practice, it becomes really easy to see this, is where the kinds of thoughts and the kinds of things that happen during meditation actually changes from day to day, and, and the focus of it actually changes over time. You know, whereas sometimes it's, uh, while it may have been about, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get this technique right. I don't even know what it's supposed to be doing, and and so on. Why am I even doing this? And I'm fine. I you know I don't need to do this. I have other things to do. So it's all like you know in the in the in the lower chakra, so to speak. But then as we keep meditating and that inner silence becomes our you know seeped in, then the issues become more and more and more subtle. It's like you know we're asking the more. Um, like the more existential questions. It's like, you know, if I'm not this, what is, what is, you know, my property? What am I? Who am I? And so on. So that means that the energy is going up. So as the energy actually touches each of these chakras, then we are forced to confront, you know, these issues. And so, you know, um, and this is probably is something you have noticed over your years of teaching meditation is um, somehow when we come to this path, we think everything is going to be solved. You know, all our problems are going to be solved and uh, it's all going to be one smooth thing. And then we discover that, my gosh, you know, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Then we go through intense periods of purification and intense periods of yeah, upheaval. Yeah, that's not part of that, the initial sales pitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's, that's really what happens. And that, that, those periods of upheaval are where the kundalini is touching those chakras, opening yeah. them, so those, those issues can be yeah. resolved. Yeah, there was a phrase that I probably heard Maharishi repeat a thousand times, and that was, something good is happening. You know, so when people are going yes. through the, these really intense things, especially on long meditation courses, six-month courses and stuff, he would always say over and over, something good is happening. Just stay with it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's that whole, I call it the washing machine effect when I talk to my students. <laughs> um, you know what a Venn diagram is, right? Yeah, where you have like two circles and they overlap a little bit, but not entirely. So if we take, you know, Vedanta and... Tantra as two circles, to what extent do they overlap and diverge uh, if you look, think of them as a Venn diagram? They overlap to a large extent, uh, a very large extent. Um, but there are some fundamental differences between, um, you know, Vedanta and Tantra. And, 
for instance, in Vedanta, you know, even even if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, um, the Brahman doesn't do anything. You know, Brahman is not the doer. Brahman just is, you know, and it's like saying awareness doesn't do anything, which is really our experience as well, uh, which is there are no creative powers attributed to Brahman. So, so in Vedanta, you know, we differentiate Brahman from Ishvara. So Ishvara is the, is the creator, but Brahman is, is pure, untouched, cannot do anything. Whereas in, in Tantra, there is no such differentiation. So Shiva and Shakti together are endowed with the creative potency. So they have these five functions of creating and sustaining and destroying and concealing and revealing. So they are inherent qualities of the divine. So that is like one fundamental difference between, between the two. And, and there are other fundamental differences. You know, a lot of people think that in Advaita Vedanta, there, is, there remains the separation between the, you know, the maya, which doesn't exist, and the, all that exists is Brahman. And that is, I think, only part of the story, because I think that is a misunderstanding of Advaita Vedanta, because even Shankara doesn't say that maya doesn't exist. He says Maya doesn't exist as we think it does. You know, the classic example is the rope and the snake, um, that it doesn't exist the way we think it does. But we can get stuck between that and, and seeing that Brahman is the only reality and Maya simply doesn't exist. And that is still a duality there. Whereas uh, Tantra resolves that right from the beginning. Maya, it's not that it doesn't exist. Everything is real. Yeah, well, you remember what Shankar said. He said, you know, the world is Maya. Brahman alone is real. Brahman is Maya. Brahman is the world. Um, yes, exactly. And Shankar, but, but incidentally, a lot wasn't of he a us Kali don't worshiper? see that. Or was that, that was Ramakrishna, uh, he was, but he was a, some aspect yes. of Mother Divine. He was a devotee, right? Oh, yes. He was very much a Mother devotee. And, you know, he was a worshiper of the Sri Yantra, and uh, a lot of people attribute him to have written the Saundarya Lahari, which is the, you know, the, um, the, absolute magnificent, very lush text uh, describing the tantric um, uh, worship and visualization of the goddess. So um, some people say that's not the same Shankara, but uh, some people think it's the same okay. Shankara. Um, but it's worth pass- mentioning that in passing simply because, I mean, almost all these great non-dual teachers that we revere, both ancient and modern, were... Um, Devotees of, of something or other, <laughs> you know. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, yes. every single one, Papaji and Ramana and Nisargadatta and Shankara, going back then, um, there wasn't a complete dismissal of all vestiges of, of duality as unworthy of our attention. There was a, a sort of a. In fact, Shankara said that the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. So even if he acknowledges that duality exists, intellectually at least, it, it, he, he considers it to have a purpose. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, this is something I just discovered recently, which I didn't know. And, uh, you know, uh, Shankar actually established all the Shankar Mats, you know, in, in India. And uh, I've been to a couple of them, actually. But I didn't know this, that... Um, he actually the, he established the tradition of daily worship of the Sri Yantra 
in the in the mat, which is very secret, but it needs to go on four times a day, all the times, you know, all the time. And and there is that worship aspect of it in an Advaitic uh, center. So it, is Sri Yantra part of Sri Vidya? And and the reason I ask is that um, you know Maharshi's teacher. Swami Brahmananda Saraswati was a, a, a worshiper or a practitioner of Sri Vidya, and he ended up becoming Shankaracharya of Jyotirmat for the first time in, in ages. They hadn't, hadn't had a, a Shankaracharya for a couple hundred years or something, and they got him to do it. But anyway, I found that interesting. I don't know much about Sri Vidya. Would it be nice to, uh, I mean, would it be interesting to tell people about that, or should we save our time for talking more about your book and the Maha uh, Vidyas and all? Um, I think it's it's worth mentioning just in passing, at least, uh, because the Mahavidyas are also part of the Sri Vidya tradition, and um, that's how I was introduced to them um, in in my Sri Vidya Upasaka uh, Upasaka role. And um, so Sri Vidya is actually Sri means auspicious, Vidya is knowledge. So it is um, Sri Vidya is auspicious knowledge, and it is the particular path to liberation where liberation is manifests as the goddess Tripura Sundari and she is the third of the Mahavidyas in the book so she is a central goddess and she is the creator she's the sustainer and she is the destroyer of everything so it is the path to her and the path involves mantra and uh, you know it's a tantric path, so it also involves yantra and specific rituals and practices that lead us to goddess Tripura Sundari. I just want to say again, I said in the beginning that all this talk of worshiping goddesses and all shouldn't be um, trivialized or dismissed as some quaint mythical indulgence or something like that. We're we're really talking about a deeper mechanics here, which um, can be extremely potent and powerful and transformational um, to those who engage in it properly. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, the thing about the yantras, I just want to say this, because my tantra teachers, um, you know, particularly don't really recommend worshipping of yantras. They think it's, it's, it's not necessary because the yantras begin to manifest in our own um, experience as our neural pathways change. Meaning so you perceive these yantras them or what? Are, Yes, because these yantras are external manifestations of these, you know, the neural pathways within the brain. Uh, and that happens automatically. And there is no real need to worship external, uh, you know, yantras or do any external rituals. It's an entirely internal process where you know, it changes our physiology. And with the change, these yantras actually start manifesting. Interesting. So when we see these pictures of yantras, they may have come from the actual cognitions of the people who originally painted them or drew, drew them, that people saw this thing and then drew it out, right? Huh. Yes, absolutely. All of Interesting. them. Interesting. Huh. Um, I was going to say something, but now I forget what it was. Oh, yeah, I know what it was. Um, you know, a lot of mantras um, have what are called a bija mantra in them, which as I understand it is um, somehow a name of, of a god or a goddess or some aspect of the divine mother and all. Um, I've been using a mantra like that in one form or another for a long time. But um, I still don't know a lot about the esoteric uh, significance and mechanics of it. Is there anything you can say that would educate me on that and others? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Bija mantras actually, um, you know, each of them actually maps to a particular cosmic force, so to speak. And then, and of course, the cosmic force is given a form of a deity. And, um, and, and so we think that it maps to that particular deity. But actually, the, the quality of the sound is such that, you know, it opens us because, you know, these Bija mantras are derived from Sanskrit and Sanskrit, you know, in certain traditions like the Sri Vidya Sadhana or Kashmir Shaivism, there is this whole concept of matrika shakti where each uh, syllable in Sanskrit actually maps to a different uh, point in consciousness, a different, you know, different uh, aspect of consciousness. So the Bija mantras are those, they actually map to certain points of those consci- of our consciousness and opens to us to the whole. So when, when you take combinations of these Bija mantras in specific sequences, which is really what Sri Vidya does, um, then you open in certain ways to that consciousness, uh, you know, through different aspects of it. And, and then as a result of that, then the neural pathways change and the yantras start manifesting. So when you say you open to different aspects, could, it, could you think of it as there are, many, there are a number of different bija mantras and um, do all roads lead to Rome? Could they be thought of as like spokes on a wheel which all lead to the hub? You take the one that works for you or is appropriate for you or something like that and then you follow it back to its source. And it has an influence that's conducive to doing that. Um, There's a whole discussion of the vibratory influence of of these sounds as opposed to any meaning they may or may not have. But, you know, different sounds have different vibratory qualities. You scratch your fingernails down a blackboard that has one influence, a beautiful flute melody has another. And so these sounds are said to be conducive to the settling of the mind and body down to transcendence. Yeah, and so uh, you know that that is really the um, the cosmic force called Tara, who's the second mother. Ma- oh, good. Mahandira, so she, know, we so should so get on to her. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she, so it's it's a perfect segue into into understanding mantras because she is the the power behind all mantras uh, because she she represents the primordial vibration and you know in in physics if we want to loosely map it and i i just want to emphasize the word loosely because it may not really be so tight in terms of correlations but the background microwave uh, radiation. background microwave yeah, the, radiation the original radiation um, from, of the big bang which from they discovered the big at bell labs right Yes, exactly. So uh, that's something I think of as, you know, what Tara is, which is the primordial vibration, which is the mother of all other vibrations that become forms. Yes, the Om or I am or uh, that is that primordial vibration. So all Bija mantras actually lead to that, that primordial vibration. So they're all modifications of that primordial vibration. So she is, Tara is the mother of mantras in the Mahavidya tradition. Yeah. Have you ever heard the notion that using a mantra with Om in it tends to make you more of a recluse? Have you ever heard that? Yes. Do you, do you believe that? I have heard that. I have heard that and I have experienced that. Um, yes, yes, and uh, it 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 is really true, and it is very profound. And um, so, do you still use the mantra with you, No, no. I was taught not to uh, because I was using it uh, for a while, and um, 
and it really makes you dissociate from stuff. But at different stages, I would say. Yeah, maybe you different know, if stages. You're not prepared I mean, for it. I had heard that, and for decades used a mantra that didn't have OM in it. And then I got a mantra from Ama about 15, 18 years ago that did have OM in it. I've been using yeah. that ever since, and it hasn't tended to make me more of a recluse. So I wonder, was that total BS? Or, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it, it just depends on the stage, uh, because I kind of did that early on. Or, you know, uh, what Yogani says is that it's more of an issue in the intermediate stages and uh, of of meditation practice. And, you know, it, it, as a beginner, it won't affect you. As you're more advanced, it won't affect you. But in the intermediate stages, if you pick that on, to, you know, take that on too uh, early, um, then it may not be the right thing for you. I see. I think it also would depend on whether you're just using OM alone, OM, 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 or whether you're using it in conjunction with the Bija mantra and other mm-hmm. aspects that mantras tend to have in them. Yeah, exactly. And and OM as a an external chanting thing is is not the problem. It's that, you know, using it to transcend the mind, that that is when it becomes an issue. Well, around this topic and this is this is an interesting discussion. I mean, it's like not your plain vanilla bat gap interview. We're getting into all kinds of things that I haven't really <laughs> discussed much in other interviews. So I'm enjoying this. Um, in the Tara part of your book, you say, sound is the subtlest of the senses. This is the principle behind mantra sadhana. And um, if you think about that, I've heard it said that thoughts are a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. And you don't really get that so much with other senses, although you might, you know, visualize dinner or, or get some taste of dinner in your, in your mind's eye. Uh, but we're much more familiar with thoughts than we are with the subtler aspects of the other senses. And therefore, that would, it would make sense that using the sense of hearing, namely thought in the form of a mantra, would be perhaps a more, an easier road to traverse than, than some of the other senses. Yes, absolutely. So you've heard of the word tanmatra. Yes. You know, tanmatra is is that five the elements. Sense. Or, so, so yeah, the five element. elements. Yeah. yeah, the subtle, you know, the subtle sense uh, relating to a particular element. I think indriyas and, comes and, in there someplace too, doesn't it? The indriyas. Indriyas, yes, exactly. So the indriyas are the external senses, and the tanmatras are the, you know, the subtle sense, so to speak, and mediated by a particular element. And so there are the five elements. Earth, for instance, it carries the tanmatra of smell. So it is, it is the, the grossest of those tanmatras, whereas sound is carried through by ether or space, akasha, which is the, the most subtle of the five elements. So that's why it's the most subtle of the, the five uh, senses, because it is carried through by that akasha. Okay, good. That's interesting. Okay, so we've talked about anything more you want to say about Tara? With each of these Mahavijas, um, you mention a shadow and, an a, and a light aspect of them, and yeah. her shadow is self-deception, her light is truth. Yes, yes. So self-deception, I think, is interesting because, you know, it's, it's something that we kind of deal with in one form or other, whether we are on the spiritual path or not. You know, ordinarily, of course, as you know, we can understand that self-deception, but even as we progress along the spiritual path, you know, this self-deception can, can be so subtle that we miss it entirely. You know, it, it comes through this most commonly um, through justification and validation of our actions and our thoughts and our feelings, like on a constant basis. And still that goes on with that self-referential 
you know, kind of a loop where I do something and I feel really validated or validated internally or externally or justified in one way or another. And so Tara actually cuts through that. And it's it's very, very shocking thing when you do this Tara sadhana and you you know, kind of she just like comes in and cuts through all of that. And, um, you know, it's like she stands for absolute radical truth, which is always staying true to your own experience and without any of that, any of that self-deception. So um, so that's how, you know, I kind of correlated that with the um, the yamas and niyamas, you know, of of truth being one of them. That's nice. Always staying true to your own experience. I mean, I've been guilty of not doing that many times, and even in a metaphysical or philosophical sense, you know, just sort of pontificating about things which I haven't actually experienced, you know. And so, how yeah, do I, I think how do we I really all do it? that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do that, and and um, I think now, especially in the day of the uh, in these days of uh, the internet and easy access to information, it's probably a little more, you know. Um, easy to do that and to, to deceive ourselves into uh, thinking one way or the other in terms of where we are. Yeah. And it's interesting about self-deception too, because I mean, there's that phrase, the blinding darkness of ignorance, Jesus saying, forgive them father for they know not what they do. And then there's so, so many marvelous stories in the Vedic literature about Maya, you know, like, Narayan asking his disciple to go off and get him a glass of water and he goes off yes. and goes through this whole thing where he meets a pretty woman at the well and ends up marrying her and having kids and, and everything else and then this big flood comes and he cries out to Narayan and, and, and all of a sudden the flood disappears and Narayan is saying well where's my water you know so. <laughs> that, that is, uh, that's exactly the story I was thinking of when we were talking about self-deception amazing that's sage Narada <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, there are stories, actually, of even Vishnu being self-deluded, you know, or, or his own stories of self-deception, uh, where, uh, you know, he, he takes on uh, the form of Mohini for a particular, uh, you know, uh, function, and then looks at himself in the mirror and thinks, oh my gosh, I'm so beautiful, and um, Shiva needs to remind him, wait, you're not even a woman, forget Mohini, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, on this note, there's a fascinating thing in your book about how you say that you say that um, you know if it weren't for self-deception, we wouldn't really have a universe. And it's necessary, sort of the creator, however you want to define the creator, um, hides himself from himself or herself from herself in order to have a creation, and it makes the whole thing more interesting than it would otherwise be. Yes, and I'm not sure which of the Mahav. Shakti. Uh, that's Chinnamasta. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. It's a bit of a jump from where we're skipping some, but I've, I've often pondered that and didn't think of it in terms of a Mahavidya, um, that there has to be this hiding quality. Yes. Uh, in order, which I think is perhaps a quality of Tamas or perhaps a quality of Chandas, you know, Chandas means hiding, um, in order for there to be a creation. Yeah. And, and you know how earlier we were talking about the five functions of the divine, which is uh, creating, sustaining, destroying, concealing, and revealing. So those are the five functions of the divine in the tantric traditions. And so Chinnamasta represents both the concealing and the revealing power of the divine. 
And, you know, she's the fiercest of the Mahavidyas, you know, more fierce than Kali because she's the off. one that cuts her own head off and, you know, uh, and, and her own head is feeding from the, you know, the, the blood in her severed neck. So that beheading, that self-beheading is, you know, very clear to see how the divine basically cuts itself off from its creation so that, you know, there is the sense of separation and the whole drama goes on. It's like, um, you know, this very common metaphor we use in the spiritual path, which is that of a play and actors in a play. And, uh, you know, you've heard of these actors who actually live in character because, you know, that's when their acting is so beautiful. And yeah, they say that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio stays in character in between takes yeah. you know, because he doesn't want to have to move in and out of it. He just you know. <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, you know, who was the actor who played Lincoln? Uh, one of my favorites. Daniel Day-Lewis? Uh, yes, yes. He's magnificent. And, you know, he, it's, you know, apparently he does that too, where he stays in character the entire time because he becomes the character. And that's what makes his acting so powerful. And so he forgets his identity. And he is the character. And so it's, it's, that's exactly like the analogy that we could use for the divine, where is if it forgets its identity so that the play can be beautiful and engaging. And so that is the concealing power of Chinamasta. And then, of course, on the spiritual path, she is also the great revealer because, you know, when that Kundalini goes up, then it's like a second beheading, but the beheading of the I-self the identity or the engagement or the tight identification with the I-self. And so the, that's the second beheading where you remember that, oh, wait, I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm, uh, I'm so-and-so. <laughs> or I'm not Lincoln. I'm, I'm Daniel Day-Lewis. Or, you know, I'm not this character. So, um, yeah, I, I just love Chinamasta. It's such a beautiful, beautiful, um, you know, metaphor for this whole process. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's like, it's humbling. I mean, nobody is above it, as we were just saying. Even Vishnu got deluded and, and, and so on. So if you think that you're incapable of being deluded or, or being overshadowed or kind of getting lost, you might have a lesson to learn that won't necessarily be enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, and you know, this is why I love those, uh, you know, the Puranas so much, because they really teach us you know, they're very humbling because there are there are stories where Shiva himself gets deluded. And, um, you know, or, or Devi, for instance, you know, Kali goes on this rampage in one story where um, nobody can stop her. Absolutely nobody can stop her. So Shiva comes and lies down under her. And that's the f first time she wakes up. She's like, oh, this is my beloved. And, you know, wakes up. And then there's another story where nobody can stop her again. And she goes on this rampage and Shiva takes the form of a baby. And um, so suddenly she loses that rage and becomes this compassionate mother to this child. So it's exactly as you say that, you know, none of us is above that. Yeah. Several other stories come come to mind right now about Shankara getting deluded and then snapping out of it, but I don't want to take the time to tell them. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, with the uh, Chandala, with yeah, the uh, there was right? that yes. one, and there was the one where he kind of occupied the body of a king who had died in order to yes. have the kind of experiences that only a king could have, and then he kind of got yeah. so caught up in the role that he forgot that he was Shankara, and his, yes. his disciples mm -hmm. went running there and started chanting one of his poems or something to remind him of who he was and yeah <laughs> interesting 
Um, here's something in the Chinamasta section of your book that jumped out at me that's a little bit of a, an abrupt segue, but uh, related, that um, dharma keeps us on the path of appropriate cultivation of sexual energy, virtue, and wisdom. If we confuse our attachments and aversions for our dharma, our creative and procreative energies are used up, and we remain attached to the I-self. So, I like that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, one thing that that is is foreign to uh, a lot of people who um, who are not very familiar with these paths is this issue of finding your bliss. You know, that's that's that find your bliss is, is like thing. a cliche. Yeah, right. it's a cliche. Uh, you know, people think find your bliss means do what you want, which is do not what, what Joseph like. Campbell meant when he said that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But but we kind of confuse our likes and dislikes for what we must be doing. You know, or what our dharma is, and and so we get so caught up in that that you know this the the this energy, the kundalini energy that we were talking about, which is this burning desire for waking up is activated. That doesn't simply happen because the prana is getting diffused into all these, you know, other channels, you know, of our likes and dislikes and this where our senses are constantly roaming around where that energy is used up. And so, and, and it so happens that this kundalini energy is a primordial sexual energy as well and um and it, we can't cultivate that to you know go up in terms of the achieving that beheading that second beheading that chinamasta is representing so you know the two attendants that stand by her are like the the two other so you know in the traditional yoga or tantric traditions there is the sushumna the central nadi um, that goes along the spine and then the ida and pingala which are the two side channels where the energy goes and they kind of loop around like the you know the symbol of medicine around the central the caduceus caduceus right yes and so what happens is when we are not aligned with dharma and and we uh, are following the bliss in in our misinformed way of following the bliss, which we think is associated with our likes and dislikes and chasing our senses, then the energy gets diffuse and is is directed more through the Ida and Pingala rather than the Sushumna. So the Ida and Pingala are opposites. You know, they are one is the hot channel, one is the cold channel. One is the sympathetic, corresponds to the sympathetic system, one to the parasympathetic. So like the, our likes and dislikes, you know, they are the channels of duality. So they continue to switch between joy and pain and, you know, all the dualities that we get affected by. And so that energy, that, that very powerful sexual energy, which is, you know, part of this kundalini energy gets diffused in that. And so, you know, the ashrama system of the, um, you know, of the ancient times was developed actually for appropriate cultivation of this energy so that it could be directed more into the central channel so that we could be liberated in, in our lifetime. And the, in the ashrama system, the dharma is actually 
very easy to follow if we follow the ashrama system. And that, that means, you know, as a child, your, your duty is to study. You know, as long as you're a student, your uh, primary dharma is to focus on whatever learning that is taking place. And, and only then are you uh, capable of going into this uh, householder life. And as a householder, then, you know, the the energy is explored in appropriate ways and then um you know with retirement then that energy has uh, if it has been explored and if it has been used appropriately then the thinking is that it would have subsided by then and uh could be used by then the energy has gone up to the higher chakras where um the thinking has changed and our worries are more in the metaphysical realm. And then the sannyasa where the energy goes up even further and then we are in that mode of self-knowledge and self-realization. And what about um, those who become monks and, and don't go through these four stages? How do they deal with it? Yeah, so, you know, in the ashrama system of the old, very few people actually were even encouraged to become monks. And only if they had that that samskara of being a monk where they had already, you know, they had signs of already having that tendency, work through all that stuff. Because, you know, if, if being a monk is something that we develop, as, you know, like Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, where he says in the first chapter, I don't want this war. I just want to be a monk. And Krishna says, no, nothing doing. That's not your <laughs> right. dharma, right? Not your dharma. Yeah. yeah, that's not your dharma. Because we, if we are trying to be a renunciate because we are trying to escape life, then that doesn't really work because then that energy is still there and it can't be faked. It, there is nowhere to, for it to go. And uh, you see that in a lot of institutions, you know, where, um, you know, celibacy is forced and it... it well, the Catholic Church, I yes. mean, you know, what a mess. Yeah. And so anything that's forced like that has to be expressed and it becomes expressed in adharmic in ways. ways. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, interesting. The Gita says... Because one can perform at one's own dharma, though lesser in merit, is better than the dharma of another. Yes, swadharma. Better is death than one's own dharma. Yes, swadharma dharma of is it. brings danger. Yes, yeah. and so along the along this line of dharma is is the issue of our gunas. You know, so what is what is my dharma as opposed to yours? You know, is is really determined by our combination of gunas. So in the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, uh, Krishna talks about these four categorizations of of society of uh, occupation or vocation yeah. based on our which goodness. is a dicey subject because you're touching upon the caste system here which is you know oh yeah the caste system yeah. is a complete you Gross, know mess distorted it's yeah. complete distortion of really what it's supposed to be because our gunas change and so our vocations may change with that as so you could go from change. being a street sweeper to a a doctor, theoretically, I mean, or uh, you can be—you can still be a street sweeper, but you know your gunas have changed, where you are no longer performing that job for whatever the original intention was. And as our gunas change, we actually change and become more evolved as as we progress along the path. So, you know, I, I'm really not—you know—most Hindus uh, will tell you that the caste system is a complete distortion. And not at all really what it was supposed to be. I'm sure, like many things. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like pretty much every religious tradition in the world, which is probably a far cry from what its founder had intended. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so we're skipping over some of these. So we've touched upon Tara. Uh, I think we've touched a little bit upon Trip Tripura Sundari, Sundari and there's Bhuvaneshwari and Tripura Bhavari. Um, we won't have time to spend a lot of time on all of them. But um, and, and then there's this whole um, section towards the end of your book where you talk about elements of the path of the Mahavidya's devotion, single-pointedness, austerity, surrender, experience, language, bliss. So th that was like a 30-second overview of the stuff we haven't talked about in your book. But And then there was a beautiful thing about opening further through ethics and virtues, yamas and niyamas, and self after self after self-realization. So uh, we could go on another two hours talking about all that stuff, but everything I just rambled out. What catches your attention that you'd like us to discuss uh, in our remaining time? Uh, perhaps about the issue of ethics. And I know you did this whole panel uh, at SAND last year. Well, it was my talk yes. uh, at SAND, my own talk. And, and next year, we're, I think we're going to have a panel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's a very important subject because I think there is a lot of misunderstanding that somehow uh, be, becoming awakened will instill you with all the ethics and and that it's it's just going to happen magically even if you spontaneously even if you haven't really cultivated that and uh, some of it happens spontaneously because you you know you when you come from a sense of wholeness but a lot of it doesn't you know I think that's a good thing to discuss. Yeah, let's do. I think it's important. And it was very much in the air last year at Sand. After I gave my talk, uh, a bunch of people, other teachers came to me and said, you know, that we were touching on that in our talks. Let's all sit down and discuss this. You know, some, there needs to be some kind of higher standard in the spiritual community because there's just been too much misbehavior and people, people, are, are, people are sick of it. People say they're getting sick. Oh, but Irene says people are getting sick of me harping on it, too. So, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but, well, let's talk, because I'm always griping about teachers behaving badly. And, uh, <laughs> okay, then we don't have to talk anyway. about it. <laughs> yeah, heck with them. We're still going to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> um, I really love uh, Greg's book, After Awareness, because he touches a lot on that. Yeah, I read that chapter. He sent it to me in preparation for my talk, and we were chatting back and forth a little bit about it. Yeah. And I think that's a very, uh, I think it is, as touchy as it may be, I think it is a, a very important thing to, to really talk about, especially also in the context of Tantra. Because, um, you know, I think Tantra is misunderstood, as you know, as this path that is about licentiousness. That you can, everything goes. And, yeah, you can uh, drink, you can do yeah. whatever, carry on. Yeah, yeah but, but that is not the case, actually. And, uh, and I go into that in a little bit in detail in the last uh, Mahavidya, the, in the chapter on Kamalatmika, on, on who really is qualified to explore with uh, some of the forbidden, um, you know, practices, and who isn't, and why not, you know? And, and so, um, and, and in the name of Tantra, for instance, there are five substances, uh, forbidden substances or practices that uh, people really quote about or talk about in Tantra, which is consumption of alcohol or meat and fish and a parched grain and sexual practices. 
so you can see how if a text tells you that you can practice with that, then you know, in our ordinary way of thinking, we're thinking, wait, wait, you know, where all the other pets are saying, don't do that. And this is telling you, do it. I'm just going to go all out and do that. But the text actually, like the Mahanirvana Tantra, for instance, goes into detail about who is a qualified seeker who can do that. And one who is already established in awareness and is working on what you might call the post-enlightenment sadhana, where, you know, you are working to remain stable in that awareness while exploring those uh, substances. But in the name of Tantra, we there is a lot of letting go of ethics, where, where teachers may be behaving inappropriately with students and teaching them that that is okay to do that. Uh, using it as a uh, kind of a crutch to fulfill their own needs or their own, you know, wherever the, that place that they feel need to feel fulfilled from. So um, I think that's in, in particularly in the tantric paths, this cultivation of the ethics is um, really, really important. And, and developing that discrimination, you know, that which is the foundation of um, Advaita Vedanta, you know, the two wings of jnana are discrimination and non-attachment, viveka and vairagya. And both are necessary uh, in order to explore further with any of those substances, but then very important for the teacher to, to develop those ethics. Yeah. Some people say that awakening and, um, and ethical behavior or have nothing to do with one another. You can be an enlightened scoundrel, and you can't judge a person's level of consciousness by their external behavior. And and other people hold a model that, you know, higher levels of consciousness or enlightenment uh, really involves um, cultivation not only of sort of inner awareness of pure consciousness, but a complete um, house cleaning of all of one's human tendencies so that they become pure and that you, you're one's vasanas so that, you know, you really do become saintly. And you, you hear people saying, you know, saintliness has nothing to do with enlightenment and, and you shouldn't judge it by, by outer behavior. So I don't know, what's your perspective on that conundrum? Well, you know, I think there are two aspects to this. One is that, you know, the, anything that is forced externally, including ethics, becomes a problem. And so I think that's where a lot of the rebellion comes from. It's like, don't tell me what to do, because it's, it's forced upon us. But, uh, you know, what I'm suggesting in this book and in my own sadhana is that the cultivation of ethics, particularly the yamas and niyamas, when we look at them from a more non-dual aspect and, you know, look at them from a subtler and subtler perspectives, then those actually change. And so, you know, it's like moving from the shadow to the light, you know, moving from the those tendencies into those where we can live those ethics without really talking about them, without really being enforced and those just happen but if we pay attention to those particular shadows and you know as i was saying earlier that is actually the difference between tantra and other paths where refinement of the body mind to be in accordance with our highest understanding is really part of the path yeah i've come to the conclusion just from my own life experience over the past 50 years and from my bat gap experience over the past eight years that everybody is a work in progress. That's such a 
it's such a comfortable conclusion to reach because if you look at this or that teacher and think, well, this guy really knows where it's at, you know, he's really got it all figured out. And then he does, he or she does something that seems wrong. You can get you into trouble. First of all, you can become disillusioned or you might think, well, who am I, ignorant schmo, to judge this enlightened person? So therefore, I must excuse and allow this kind of wrong behavior, that kind of thing. But if you if you kind of have the attitude that everybody's a work in progress, you think, all right, well, this guy has some work to do in this particular area. He may have great gifts and you know, radiate wonderful shakti and so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean that on all counts there has been complete development to the to the highest degree possible. Yeah, I love that. And that's 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 how I feel too is that we're all works in progress. And and I think that touches upon this issue of the guru. You know, the role of the guru because we get disillusioned when we are attached to the teacher rather than the teaching. So it is the more we get, you know, attached to the finger pointing to the moon, then the more chances there are of being in, forming opinions one way or the other about that person. Whereas, um, you know, if our sights are always on the moon, then, you know, then we realize that everything else is really not that important. You know, what, what somebody does or what somebody doesn't do. And as long as we are you know, our sight is on the highest always. Yeah. It's like if, if one goes to study chemistry, for instance, um, in college, one's orientation isn't, oh, my chemistry teacher is so wonderful. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, I'm interested in chemistry and this guy knows about it and he's teaching me and I, I, I appreciate and, and respect him for doing that. But the focus is on the chemistry. Yes. You know, but in, in spirituality, Part, part of the complication is that surrender to the guru is, has often been, you know, a requirement or advocated as essential to really learning what the guru has to teach in a way that you wouldn't expect from a chemistry teacher, you know. Yeah. Um, he wouldn't say, surrender to me and I will give you all my knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Although you do have to cooperate and do yeah. the tests and <laughs> pay attention in the lectures. So that, that almost, in a way... Uh, it sets up the possibility of difficulty if it's in the wrong hands. You know, I mean, in the right hands, I, I imagine it can be a beautiful thing. In the wrong hands, it can be abused. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know that actually, my uh, friend, my friend and I were talking about this just yesterday with this whole issue of the inner guru, and I wrote about that in the book. Um, and we are always taught in Vedanta, for instance, that your uh, your guru is going to always be a manifestation of where you are at any given stage. And um, and so your outer guru is always a reflection of really what your heart's desire is, right? And on the spiritual path. And I guess for me, I'm really not the kind uh, that that subscribes to this whole surrender to the guru at all costs kind of a thing. I, but but I understand the teaching surrender to the teaching, but that may not that may not necessarily be the teacher. And and so my gurus and my teachers have always been ones who have kept themselves out of it and have always pointed to the moon and said, "Focus on that, not me." And um, so that's worked out well for me. It also depends on how we define surrender. If it's some kind of slavish, mindless, you know, willless subservience uh, where you put aside your own good judgment 
I mean, there's that great quote from the Buddha. He, he says, you know, don't believe anything anybody says, and even if I say it, if it doesn't jibe with your own understanding and common sense and, and so on. So we, we have to define surrender if we're making these kinds of comments. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this is the thing, whether it is with Vedanta or with, uh, or with Tantra, you know, the, the fundamental thing that is emphasized is you have to have, cultivate your own discernment. sense, discernment. And that is like the most important thing because that is your guiding light. And the, the surrender should be to that. And, you know, even Shankara says in the Viveka Chudamani, uh, what really devotion is, who the devotion should be to, and it should be to the highest, you know, which is the self with the capital S. So that is the, the highest kind of devotion. And, you know, the, the guru is just a, or the teacher is just the external person driving you to that, but your sights are always on the self. And so discernment and discrimination, you know, Viveka is, is the most important. Viveka is discrimination, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Crest jewel of discrimination. Yeah. Yeah, so I, maybe a concluding point on this one is that any teacher worth his salt is going to um, do everything he can to help you cultivate discernment and discrimination. Yes. He's, he's not going to violate your tendency to be discerning or discriminating and, you know, say, you know, do as I say, not as I do, or any kind of nonsense like that. He's going to help you. Question, he's going to allow questioning. Yes. And, and not set himself up as infallible. Yeah. Or uh, beyond reproach or anything like that, but sort of be humble and open and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it's like I tell my children, and this is something that as a mother of two uh, daughters and, and uh, telling them, you know, you need to trust your own self first. And I also teach them, for instance, you know, uh, you don't have any responsibility for making me happy or, you know, that's not your job. Making me happy is my job, for instance. However, that doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want because you still need to yeah, live in harmony. It doesn't mean self-indulgent. Right. right. You need to still learn to live in harmony. And so it is with awakening and living in the world. You know, if you're, if you're awakened on a mountaintop, who cares? You know, you can behave as you want. But if you're living in society, then we still need to be able to live in harmony. And I think that's where these uh, ethical issues come in. Yeah. When we were talking earlier about, um, you know, dharma and, and the good versus, versus the pleasant and so on, I, I just wanted to throw in the story of Nachiketas, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where I, it seems to be the conclusion of that story was uh, he, he was, refused all these things that were just merely pleasurable because he wanted the truth. Which is not not to say that we should all abstain from any form of pleasure, but it's a matter of priorities, it seems to me. Uh, and that if we hold adherence to truth and dharma as our highest priority, then all everything else kind of falls into place and, you know, gets properly ordered. Yeah, and and that that is really the uh, the whole essence of Chinamasta. You know, it's saying, you know, stick to that first and then you know, the uh, other things will fall into place. Yeah. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee. Yes. A question came in from uh, Mark Peters in Santa Clara. Mark is a regular viewer of the live interviews and almost always asks a question. He, he said, um, can you speak about the divine feminine's role in establishing a sustainable relationship with the planet? Are global warming, deforestation, rampant consumerism, etc., largely symptomatic of the disconnected hyper- that characterizes the masculine. 
Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and thank you for bringing that up because I just want to talk a little bit about that because it's very important. And when we, when we make this dichotomous division between the masculine and the feminine, we somehow remember that that, too, that division too is in our minds because the divine has no gender. The divine isn't dichotomous and Shiva and Shakti are always one. And when, if we talk about Shiva as a masculine force and we say Shiva is attributeless and everything in creation is Shakti. So the the issue of you know the the negative aspects the you know the destructive aspects are also shakti but that's her shadow side so the role of the divine feminine is not that it's a masculine side that that needs to be addressed it is the shadow side of shakti that needs to be addressed because all of that is also shakti it, it doesn't matter whether we are men or women. All these shadow aspects are still Shakti, whether we are male or female. And so the aspect of the divine feminine coming into the, you know, the role of the divine feminine in terms of cultivating um, better world is one of cultivating the light of Shakti, which is, a, you know, all the different uh, collaborative kinds of uh, qualities. And the beauty of the divine feminine or the beauty of the feminine in general is that it is, it doesn't, it's not about the individual. And this obsessive attachment to the individual, for instance, when I first came to the U.S., I would hear people say, think about number one. You have to think about <laughs> number that. one. And it didn't really yeah. make sense to me. I'm like, what is number one? I didn't even know what that was. But it's a very highly individual kind of thing. You know, everybody is looking out for themselves. And that is, we think that's the masculine side, that left-brained, hyper-dominant, uh, go-getting, e efforting kind of a thing. We, we assign that to be a masculine quality. But in reality, it's the shadow of Shakti. So... Um, what we need to develop is the light of Shakti. And, and so then the individual is part of the whole, as Kali shows us in her iconography, where everything is interconnected. And so when we, the more we align with that, we understand that there is nothing that a person in Nairobi is doing that is not going to affect me. You know, them taking a sip of coffee is going to affect me in perceptible ways. So we are all connected in, in, in this web and not just the earth, the whole of creation. And so when we, the more we step into her light, the more we kind of step away from that uh, aggressiveness and that, uh, you know, the violent aspect, which is, as we talked about, the shadow of Kali. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it seems like the more unified we become, the more we appreciate the oneness or the wholeness of life, the less we could stand to, um, to defile the environment or uh, you know harm other people in any way whatsoever because we're really defiling ourselves our, it's it's you know the the amazon is our lungs and the rivers are our blood and, and we're we're kind of spoiling our own nest by yeah <laughs> i mean it's obvious yeah yeah and and you know in in the sri vidya tradition um the you know we think of the goddess uh where ev the creation is her body 
exactly as you said. You know, the Amazon is, is our lungs. So that's exactly how we visualize the Devi, which is, it's hard to visualize. You know, this, this, all of this is her body. And so uh, that's why this devotion is so important, because it's like, you know, when you're devoted to something, you are less likely de- to defile it. It's like I'm so devoted as a mother to my children is uh, that their highest good is always, you know, my, my uh, goal. And you don't have to think about that. It's instinctual. And, you know, and it be, what we were just saying becomes instinctual, too. You know, the sort of appreciation of the, what was it, Vasudev Kutumbakam, yes. I think it said, the yes. world is my family. Yes. It, it, it's not just a, a, you know, a nice little concept. It becomes your we're a way of being innate, yeah your visceral way of functioning yes you know? exactly and and that is the the real you know the real essence of the path of the goddess is is that developing that that softness and you know that's more of that parasympathetic activity that a surrender and that and that being okay and we're kind of conditioned to work through effort and you know it's like go 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 get what i want at the cost of everything else so just surrendering all of that into this softness and sweetness is is really her light yeah and when you think about it you know if we maybe if we equate goddess the goddess with nature itself <clears throat> the, nature is a huge powerful invincible force which is conducting nature in the biggest sense conducting the whole universe uh, in in its minute detail without an effort yes yeah right yes and so you use the word surrender if we can surrender to or al- align ourselves or tune ourselves to that intelligence of nature which i believe is embodied by all these mahavidyas yes then Brahman becomes the charioteer, then they become the driving force of our life, and we can just sort of relax in the chariot and enjoy the ride. <laughs> yeah, and the, you know, the, the ironic thing is, it's already always the case, right? They are it driving is. it anyway. It's just we think we have control. Right, and so we keep interfering with the, their <laughs> attempts to drive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay, well, I think we're about done, uh, although we never we could be never done. And uh, as I was reading your book, I was thinking, you know, this is one of those books where I wish we could t- kind of take a month and read each paragraph and then discuss it, <laughs> read another one and then discuss it, you know, but that's not really quite the purpose of an interview. So <laughs> uh, the interview is sort of a, a taste or a sampling. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you and i'm sure we'll be connecting again are you, are you going to sand in the fall i hope so good yes. i'll be there yeah. and you mentioned you might even come to fairfield at some point so that'll be lovely yes. if you come to fairfield yes i'd love to yeah. i'd love to come so you know i encourage people to check out this book i, I really learned a lot from it and, and really enjoyed it i'll have a link to it on kavita's page on batgap.com and then your new book is is more about health. You said. Well, actually, it's it's about it's called the heart of wellness, and the heart here refers to awareness, the heart, the great heart, as, as being the essential, the, the most important component of in, wellness. In wellness. Yes, and I and see. how do you bring medicine and spirituality together? And uh, how do we define how what happens to our relationship with health and with disease when you enter the heart? And so that's, that's really what that book is about. Yeah. 
And I would say, even if you end up getting a disease like Ramana did, for instance, you know, people would say, "Oh, Ramana, you're suffering," and he says, "No, I'm not suffering. You know, this, this isn't touching me." Yes, exactly. So, the, you know, that's what I—that's uh, really the the crux of that is suffering is optional because you know, in traditional medicine, we equate disease with suffering, and and you know, as you talk about you know papers and stuff, and we we uh, look at academic papers where they say, you know we have decreased disease and suffering. And I would beg to defer, defer and say, we've decreased disease, but not necessarily suffering. <laughs> so uh, two different things. And um, yeah, so that's, that's really delving more into, you know, how do we get there, you know, enter the heart of wellness and through principles of Ayurveda and yoga and Vedanta. So uh, that's what that is. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much. Really enjoyed speaking with you. And um, we will do it again sometime. So just to make some general concluding remarks, I've been speaking with Kavita Chanayan, MD. I'll be linking to her website from her page on batgap.com. And um, you can go there and see what she's up to and get in touch probably. And, um, you do some kinds of – do you do anything remotely with people aside from your local practice as a physician? Do you do spiritual satsangs or – consultations over Skype or do you offer retreats or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, I do actually. And I have a course coming up on Shakti Rising where we will be exploring all the Mahavidyas. It's a 12-week course. It's all online and um, it's it's coming up. It starts um, end of February and it's a 12-week course and um, and then later this year, I'll be doing a course on the, the heart of wellness. And then I have some mini courses uh, just before Navratri, you know, we'll do the uh, whole Navratri uh, course. And then um, retreats and intensives and workshops. And later this year, uh, uh, you know, I'm planning a uh, Shakti Yatra, actually, going to India to specific Shakti Pitams and um, really practicing with the deities at those places. So, yeah. yeah. It's funny, this image just came to me, you know, because you do all these things. Here you are, this you know, medical doctor, and then you're doing all these courses, and you have your own spiritual practice, and this and that. I kind of pictured you as one of these deities with four or six arms, you know, kind of <laughs> doing all this stuff at once. <laughs> I don't know how you manage it all. you got the teenage daughters and the whole... <laughs> yeah, it's... Writing, writing books all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, you know, it's, it's Shakti doing that. It's, the, it's her creative yeah. flow. So... <laughs> <laughs> Great. Alrighty, well, thanks. Um, and those listening or watching, uh, you're probably familiar, you probably watched my interviews before, but if you haven't, um, go to BetGap.com and if you want to uh, sign up to be notified of new ones, just click on the little email notification link. Um, sign up for the audio podcast if you like to listen to things while you're commuting and stuff. Um, <clears throat> there, You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's always helpful. The more subscribers I have, the more seriously YouTube takes me <laughs> and helps me. Um, so uh, do that if you haven't. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, Kavita. Thank you.